welcome back to another episode of Extra Milestone. Extra Milestone is a bonus Cinemaholics series, and this is episode four. And you may be wondering, what is Extra Milestone? I haven't caught up on the other films you've covered in this series. Well, it's very simple. The goal of Extra Milestone is to introduce our audience of film lovers to significant milestones in film history by revisiting them in the present. These are films that we believe went the extra mile in their filmmaking and the legacy that they have on films today and beyond. Last month, we talked about Seven Samurai. And stay tuned toward the end of this episode to not only hear what we'll be considering for June 2019, so you can actually give us some ideas of what you would like to hear, but you can also hear some of the films we didn't decide to talk about that did have anniversaries in the month of May of 2019. Let's say hello to our normal, well, I shouldn't call them normal, but they're our usual panel <laughs> of cinephiles, cinemaholics rather. First up, we have Cinemaholic staff writer, Sam Noland. Hello, John. It's great to be back. It's been a little while, but I'm always happy to talk about an extra milestone. It's always great to have you on to do so. And then, of course, my co-host on the main show of Cinemaholics and one of our staff writers, Mr. Will Ashen. Bonjour. Ah, uh, yes. Practicing <laughs> your French. Uh, I bet you didn't even need the subtitles. Oui. <laughs> uh, yes. N- no. <laughs> oh, is Is that really what... Is no in French? Do, do you guys? Oh, yeah. I didn't take French in high school, so. Oh, you better believe I did. Like the three French words I know, so <laughs> I, I got the the cycle right through them. Thanks to Dexter's Laboratory, I do know omelette du fromage. So other than that, <laughs> oh, I know I know another uh, turn of phrase from a popular song, but I won't say it for younger listeners. But um, Ooh, yes. I, I apologize to all of our lovely listeners from France uh, for oh, yeah. treating your language well. like a joke, not our intention. Your language is extremely beautiful. So uh, very, very excited to oh, talk about our first French film. The most beautiful language. Yeah, I, I think French is probably the most beautiful language yeah. uh, out there. I would <laughs> say so. Uh, I think The Matrix Reloaded made that case very elegantly back in 2000. <laughs> whatever it was, 2003. So yep. this month, we're talking about a movie called The 400 Blows, a very, very influential film. It was between this and Stalker, which we mm-hmm. also considered. But I think 400 Blows, first of all, had a much more manageable t- uh, runtime for us. <laughs> but also, I, I really have been wanting to talk about the French New Wave. I know it's pretty early in the Sexual Milestone series, and we'll get plenty of other chances to get into the New Wave. But Sam, some of our listeners and I might not be aware of what the French New Wave is. So in case they are hmm. unfamiliar or they forgot, what is the French New Wave and why is it so significant? I would love to tell you, John, but I think before I do that, I think it might be worth our time Uh, to talk a little bit about Francois Truffaut, the director of the film we're going to be talking about today. Uh, So Francois Truffaut, yes, oh yes, the original Young Turk, uh, some would say. Uh, So Francois Truffaut was born in 1932 in France and was a cinephile and troublemaker for pretty much his entire life. Uh, he had so a very... he was a cinemaholic? Okay, move uh, on. Oh, yes. Yes, you're, uh, you're right right there with the uh, jokes there, John. So don't think I don't appreciate it. Um, but yes, he had a very sporadic 
um, home life uh, was born out of wedlock, which at the time was had quite a stigma to it. Um, and so sort of had to jump around between uh, nannies and relatives and parents of various kinds and sort of learn to become self-sufficient early on uh, and was expelled from numerous schools. And by the age of 14 decided, you know, I'm just, I don't need to go to school uh, whatsoever. And so and we should say just, he was self-sufficient, but I, I'm under the impression that he really got by because of his friends, right? Like he had kind of like in the movie, the 400 blows, which is depicted, he had people like let him stay at their house and like hide him. And he yeah. was like really getting by with the help of his friends. I mean, that song was basically written for him and it wasn't even written yet. Yeah. Well, there you the go. Beatles so, song, to be clear. It all, it all comes full circle in the end. Yeah. It, it's funny you mentioned that because, uh, what happened was that that's sort of what he did throughout the late forties. And then in, um, the early fifties, Francois Truffaut met a, a film critic named Andre Bazan, mm-hmm. uh, who was the founder of the very popular film magazine, Cahier du Cinema, which is still running today. Uh, it's one of the most prestigious film journals ever to exist. They're, yeah. they're notorious for having extremely, almost unreasonably high standards. Uh, and that's sort of what's great about them. Uh, so they're, they're definitely worth, uh, worth a read if you can get a, if you can get a hold of them. And Truffaut became a critic at the age of 20, the ripe young age of 20. Um, Andre and, he was like a father figure to Truffaut. What's that? That's how old Sam Noland is. I know you like to oh, hide your age, yeah. but yeah, yes. several times people people have been like, John, you know, I listen to the show and you're regular buzz in. And then, you know, Sam Noland is, of course, your true <laughs> foe. And I was like, we'll see. We'll see what he does. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Uh, I've, got, I've, got a, I've got a ways to go before I can ever come close to reaching the legacy of true foe. But that is the future. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Tomorrow is a mystery, so we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but yeah, uh, Bazan was very much a father figure, and um, they sort of they originated the uh, auteur theory a little bit, which I'm sure we'll talk he about. Coined it, coined uh, not it, yeah. Bazin, but uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Truffaut, Truffaut coined the term and then popularized it. It did exist obviously before him, but of he course. kind of spoke truth to it. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, It's basically the idea that the director of a film uh, is sort of is like the principal author of it and that a true director should have like sort of a set of values that they return to again and again uh, and are sort of perfecting Mm -hmm. or playing with. But it's always a variation on sort of the same thing. So it's a very interesting theory. Heavily, Uh, heavily inspired by Hitchcock, right, where he made the argument. It was an unpopular opinion at the time. But the idea that Hitchcock's movies all had very strong stamps of his creative vision, they weren't studio mandated. And that was like the future of cinema. It was like, and he got, he was very controversial for saying like, the problem with cinema is that all of these films are stagnant, and especially French films of the day. And he would point to American directors like Hitchcock and Orson Welles, which a huge influence on him, and be like, Mm -hmm. these are auteurs. These are, these are directors who their creative vision supersedes the studios. And that's why they're films are so good and yeah. he got laughed out of can for for ideas like this <laughs> yeah that's that's the brilliant part i i love i found this out today and i love this uh truffaut was so uh, vicious in fact that he earned a nickname the grave digger the grave of digger. french cinema <laughs> which yeah. i just dearly love uh yeah and it's pretty much what you're saying he was just 
it, he was very frustrated at sort of the lack of artistry, so to speak, that uh, that he just wasn't getting out of cinema at the time that he desperately wanted. And so in uh, 1958, after seeing Orson Welles' uh, great film Touch of Evil, mm-hmm. he said, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to do this myself. He had directed a couple of short films early on. Um, I found out that one of them, uh, which is called Un Visit, w- has has never been released to the public because Truffaut is embarrassed by it. So that was oh, made wow. in 1955. Uh, he did another short in 1957 called Les Mistons, uh, which I've seen, and it's pretty good. Have you seen that, either of you? No, I've never seen any of his short films. He didn't do many. It was just the two. Uh, what about you, Will? Nope. Yeah, it's uh, I, it, it's uh, it's about 18 minutes long, and um, it's it's just about a bunch of hoodlum kids who sort of go around. It doesn't amount to a whole lot, but it's clear to see the, the sort of the uh, intent and artistry right from the beginning. But in 1958, he decided, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this myself. I'm not seeing the change I want," right. and thus began the French New Wave, which was sort of this mass of. Uh, rejection of what cinema was sort of known as at the time in France, at least it was, it was a little ragtag uh, group of uh, critics turned directors among them, uh, Jean-Luc Godard yes. and Agnes Varda, rest her soul. And she uh, wasn't Jacques part of the original four though. She not um, the original four. Yeah. yeah. It was, but she, she was definitely was a defining voice. Yeah, she came in a couple years later, but uh, was a defining voice nonetheless. So the original four was uh, Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, Jacques Rivette, and Claude Chabrol. And um, Eric Romer, you could argue. Um, but I, it, I suppose. Uh, Jacques Rivette is kind of funny, too. I didn't catch this until watching the film the other day, but uh, one of Jacques Rivette's movies is even referenced in yeah. 400 Blows, uh, Paris and Belongs I, and to I've Us. A, I've got a fun fact about that, but we'll have to get to that a little bit later. Uh, sounds um, good. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, they were all sort of, like I mentioned, they were they were upset at the lack of realism, more or less, uh, and uh, very inspired by certain uh, authors and uh, uh, philosophers of the 18th century, uh, one of which is, is referenced directly in The 400 Blows. So we'll have to mention that a little bit. Um, but yeah, so it opened the 400 bullets opened in Cannes in 1959 only a year after Truffaut had been banned for indecency yeah. which i think is fantastic <laughs> only french critic not to be invited to Cannes in 58 the only one that's like think about that of every critic in france only francois truffaut it's not that there was... were that many but yeah it's still yeah that's true but it's still funny that they that they were like i guess I guess they're uh, they uh, they were a little more thin skinned back then, but mm-hmm. who's to say? Maybe there is something else going on that we don't know about. Regardless, uh, the movie opened in 1959. It was it was May fourth, correct? May fourth, yes. uh, 1959, and I think yeah, in France. I don't know when it released in the U.S. It opened on uh, November 16th of 1959 okay. in the U.S. So it took a little while, but got there eventually. Uh, got here eventually, I should say. Uh, and it went wide in France on June 3rd. So pretty much right, right out of can. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was immediately met with massive acclaim. Uh, and in fact, uh, Francois Truffaut won best director at the festival for that year. So just 
which I imagine must have been very, very vindicating. Uh, and it expanded to various other countries over the years, like the U.S., which I mentioned. Um, and I think, I think it was. I, do either of you follow Eric Snyder on Twitter? I think I, I think it was him, the critic. Yeah, I do. I think it was him who once said that the this is it's so insane that Truffaut won Best Director a year after <laughs> being banned from Cannes. It's like the he said. I think his joke was it's like the equivalent of a guy at a comedy club heckling the comedian and then a year later <laughs> like opening the set right like it, it, it's just basically unheard of uh, i yeah. think i also said like well, um <clears throat> no go ahead i was gonna say i mean not only that would be like that the heckler like winning the comedy show yeah yeah that's like, kind of comedy yeah. festival, right? it was it was something along those lines that that, that i forget when he the, the full thing but i actually wrote in here in my notes it would be like will ashen not getting invited to sundance only to win the grand jury prize next year for his <laughs> debut film because again this was his debut well, film and we should not yeah <laughs> your garfield documentary is gonna kill so that's right i hope so i mean it's very revealing i mean <laughs> it, it's very revealing. rated r uh <laughs> I but yeah so so yes, you've, you've done a pretty good job of explaining why the French New Wave is a big deal, uh, because it really is it really is a moment in film history that the idea like anybody can make a movie and could have put their own stamp on it and experiment and the idea of an indie movie, even though it wouldn't really be cemented until the '90s, uh, thanks mm. to Quentin Tarantino, the French New Wave, which he of course draws a lot of inspiration from is the predecessor to that idea of like a film should be in the hands of a director with a real vision. We've said it many times on Cinemaholics. I know, Will, it's it's an opinion you've carried before, this idea that you tend to really gravitate toward films that have a pretty clear and coherent vision by the director, even if it's swinging wildly and completely misses. It's still an entertaining <laughs> swing to look at. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty uh, broad way of saying it. But yeah, I, I do tend to feel that way. But all right, let's let's get into our experiences with 400 Blows, starting with you, Sam. How many times have you seen the film, and how did you watch it this time? I have seen the movie three times. Uh, the first time I watched it was in the summer of 2016. Uh, I watched it because that was that was back in the day. I don't. Do you guys remember this when Hulu had access to the Criterion Collection? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Those those were the days, and. Uh, and uh, I remember seeing, oh my goodness, they have all these classics that I've heard about but have never been able to find, uh, just because you know, they're uh, they're cinema classics. But that's how I first reason. watched, uh, I think, Bicycle Thieves was on Hulu. Nice, yes, yes, that's quite possibly my favorite movie of all time. So it's certainly uh, they they've got a lot of good stuff on there. And I saw this movie like, oh yeah, I've seen that one list some somewhere. The Four Hundred Blows, and I watched it with my brother, uh, good old producer Den, and. And uh, just just loved it to pieces. Um, I don't remember any of the specific details of why. I don't. I didn't look at movies uh, the same way that I do now. Uh, but I I dearly loved it. And then I watched it again a little over a year later. I can't remember exactly why. To be honest, uh, that was also that was uh, those were in the filmstruck days. So yeah. I watched it through that. And then this time, I di- I literally just realized this right now. I've watched it on all three of Criterion's streaming iterations. Huh. So Hulu, oh, 
Filmstruck and the Criterion Collection, which is how I watched it this time. Um, I regret never getting the Blu-ray, but I'm def- I definitely intend on getting that one when I. And can. I think you mean the Criterion Channel. What did I say? I think you said Criterion Collection, unless I misheard you. Oh yeah, but yes, yeah, the Criterion I, it's, Channel, it's totally which is possible. yeah, yeah. We we talked about that, of course, plenty of time. That's how I, I think I said I watched Seven Samurai last week. Always a mm-hmm. always a great place to start when you want to try to find a good old classic movie. But okay, Will Ashton, what about you? How many times have you seen it? And how did you watch it this time? Uh, this is my first time watching it all the way through. I, I have seen bits and pieces of it. I know for sure that I saw the last five minutes of it on the beach. Um, stuff like that I've seen before. But this is my first time watching it uh, all the way through. And I watched it through the Criterion DVD. I don't know when it came out, but it seems like it's an earlier edition just based yeah. on the uh, style of the DVD. I can look up exactly when it came to Criterion, but... Yeah, that's how I saw it. Same here. First time watching the film all the way through. I had seen, let's see, I had seen the opening credits before, uh, where it's like the perspective of the child from the car looking at the Eiffel Tower. And I had seen the interrogation scene that happens toward the end, which a lot of people would say is the best scene uh, in a lot of ways. So other than that, though, yeah, I had had never really. Yeah, same here. I definitely quite the quite quite worth the discussion, but. I, I watched it in Criterion Channel, and I think uh, along with you, Sam, I checked out all the extra features that they had. They had a, an interview with uh, the actor who plays him. Um, let's say uh, John uh, Leard, Jean Pierre Leard. Jean Pierre Leard, correct. Thank you for pronouncing it correctly, and uh, or as correctly as I can hear it. <laughs> but uh, yes, kind of went on to be like his muse of some sort, right, for his later films. Yeah, they did yeah, sequels for a good long while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Truffaut did several films uh, around this character of Antoine Donnell, and he's still alive. I think he's in his seventies now, and I don't think he's still making movies, but he did make movies well into adulthood. So, yeah. But let's talk a little bit about the background behind the Four Hundred Blows. We mentioned plenty of things already, but uh, we can definitely get into some extra details. First of all, we didn't really say this on the outset, but this is the 60th year anniversary for the film. As we said, it came out in 59. Uh, so just like Some Like It Hot, which was our second episode of Se- uh, Extra Milestone, this is another 1959 film. And we mentioned, of course, Francois Truffaut. This was his first film that he ever directed, but he also produced it. He co-wrote the film with Marcel Mousset, who was a French screenwriter. He also did another film that came out later that year called The Verdict, uh, which is directed by Jean Valère, which I think was a film that it came out after The 400 Blows, but it definitely was not expected. Like The 400 Blows was not expected to be a film to like elevate Marcel Mousset for sure. And... Mm. Uh, we also talked about, yes, Truffaut was a member of the Young Turks. These were the film critics who, like you said, Sam, like their whole thing was like, can we break the rules of films in the way that the directors of the silent film era did, right? Because yeah. th- their thing was like not to be different for the sake of it. I think that's what people sometimes confuse about the French New Wave of like, oh, mm-hmm. they're just trying to break rules because they 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 watched so many films as critics they they knew how to subvert your expectations but it really was no it was more about pioneering new ways to cut between scenes new ways to edit uh one of the very innovative things that Truffaut does especially in 400 blows for example is that he he found a really great way to sort of cut down transition pieces instead of giving you these like 
wide shots of a building before you would go in there. He would just cut right to locations and really just let the the viewer fill in the gaps. So he's kind of a pioneer in sort of challenging the idea of show don't tell because a lot of the time it's the films of this era would be lots and lots of show, not very much tell. And then he was yeah. sort of like, you don't need that much of either. And so he was he was really great at that balancing act. Mm. But yeah, so the title of the film, this is something I didn't know before I started <laughs> looking into it. Uh, the 400 oh, yeah. Blows actually translates from a French idiom, which doesn't really mean a lot to us who speak English. But if you translate the meaning behind the idiom, the idea is that, like to, oh, Will, please explain it. Uh, well, I don't know the exact, I mean, I can't. I have the phrase here, but I don't want to say it because I know I'm going to mispronounce it. But sure, same the <laughs> I guess English translation. The English translation is to raise hell. Is that what you got, John? Yeah, and to also yeah. to sow your wild oats and raise hell. Oh, yeah. I, okay, yeah. But yeah, that's the idea, right? Of like sowing your wild oats as like a kid. It's like this this very raw idea of like rebellion and mm-hmm. just being a you know kids are bad people basically. <laughs> but the funny thing is, when they were going to release this film. In the U.S., what you were saying earlier, Sam, uh, they had to do a lot of su- they had to do a lot of subtitling, obviously, and dubbing. And the film is totally dubbed. Uh, they they filmed this silently, and then they dubbed the audio later, which I think this is pretty impeccable uh, with that considered. Oh, and yeah. is that the and- case? Yeah, yeah, you would never uh, know it if the, if any if no. Actually, I was gonna say because there are a couple of times where I noticed the dialogue was not in sync with the mouth movement. I wasn't mm-hmm. sure why if that was like the DVD conversion being off. So that explains a whole lot. Right, right. They and they were gonna call this movie. Uh, Noelle Gilmore actually, she was the one who oversaw the film being made for U.S. audiences. She was gonna call the film Wild Oats, but the distributor actually decided to just change it back to the Four Hundred Blows, even though it's not really a faithful translation and. A <laughs> a lot of people were confused going into the film because they thought this was going to be the idea of like a corporal punishment or like 400 punches. You know what I mean? And even I was kind of yeah. confused. I was like, why is this called the 400 blows? This is like a reference to a, like some kind of specific French thing. And it is. Um, yeah. Thought it might have been like some sort of weird Bible verse or something or like, you know, some, a reference to a book. But no, it literally like that. The the title, as we know, it just it means nothing. Yeah. Essentially. I was wondering, I was looking in the book for like when they showed the Balzac, you know, literature. I was like, oh, is 400 blows in there somewhere? Yeah. No, not that I know of. That's it's a, it's just a, just a phrase that they had that for whatever reason, with this crazy thing that we call language. Uh, <laughs> Who knows how words are formed? Who knows? They're, they're all made up. So there's that. All right. And uh, also, we've kind of alluded to this, but this is a semi-autobiographical film, a lot of syllables, uh, which it actually depicts some of the real life experiences of Truffaut's childhood. So, Sam, you mentioned a lot of that, you know, his kind of like rough handed existence. Really, he's drawing from that in this film. And it's what really convinced him to cast Jean-Pierre Liot in the main role because his audition, which you should definitely check out if you can, it's on YouTube. It's also on the Criterion channel. You, Truffaut definitely saw an uncanny likeness and similarity in not just their lives, but also Liot's just demeanor, his mannerisms, the way he spoke, his sort of eloquence, but also his like, is he really right here in the room with us right now? Or is his mind like a million miles away? That's kind of his like signature of this film. And he was so impressed with Layad and, and how similar they were that he actually allowed this young kid who filmed this 
who did this film when he was like 13, 14, to improvise a lot of his lines, including the that scene I, I was alluding to earlier, the interrogation scene, where we find out a lot yeah. of things about his backstory. Last couple of things, movie was mostly shot in Paris, France, as you can expect, and a lot of other a lot of locations around France, as you'll understand as you watch the film. And 99 minutes, just just 99 minutes long. I know, Will Ashton, <laughs> that was a big uh, big selling point for you to, to settle on this film. For this month, yes. Considering yes. that last month we did the 204-minute long <laughs> Seven Samurai, I just requested that, hey, let's not do another four-hour movie. It's I thought that Which was pretty stalker would have I'm, been. I'm glad we, yeah. So I'm glad we got something just under 100 minutes this time around. All right. Uh, before we get into the plot synopsis of this film, and just a reminder, if you've never listened to Extra Milestone before, we're not going to be spoiling anything of this film until we get into the plot synopsis. Once you hear Will start talking about the synopsis and everything, that's your that's your clue to go check this movie out if you don't want to be spoiled on it. But before we get to that, Sam Noland, what, what is the legacy yep. of the 400 Blows? Why why are we talking about it right now? Is it really supposed to? Is it really a celebrated film? It's it's an incredibly celebrated film. Uh, for one thing, when it was originally released, um, as we mentioned earlier, it was met with critical acclaim at Cannes, and when it was released to the public, uh, to the point where it remained in theaters for longer than uh, expected. And in fact, there's a great interview with Truffaut uh, available on the Criterion Channel, and I imagine uh, YouTube as well and stuff, um, where he said that yeah, I went over to a America and everyone just keeps going to see it. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of it was publicity and word of mouth and the press, and I was there, so everyone thought it might be relevant. So it just kept making money, and all told, it made uh, thirty-seven million in U.S. or uh, excuse I think me, thirty point seven. Yeah, yeah, thirty point seven million in U.S. dollars, which adjusted for inflation is over two hundred and sixty million. So nothing to nothing to sneeze at whatsoever. It's like Ladybird making two hundred and sixty million, which it did not. <laughs> it didn't make over a hundred. You're never going to believe this. I'm literally going to reference Lady Bird later. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I thought about referencing mid-90s in this episode. Oh, okay. uh, Roma was easily the yes. most, like, as soon as I saw I was like, oh my gosh, like, Alfonso Cuaron basically, not plagiarized, but he definitely yeah. lifted heavily from this movie in, in some yeah. good ways. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron lifted from this movie and Andre Rublev. So that's that's a little fun fact for you. But anyways, uh, and then, uh, yeah, it just, and the movie, it just has not gone away since. It's been on numerous best ever lists, as in best movies of all time. Uh, notably, the Sight and Sound list, uh, the one they did in 2012, it was ranked the 39th greatest movie of all time. I also happen to know that on in Empire Magazine in 2010, uh, mentioned this last episode, they made a list of the top 100 films of world cinema, and this made number 29. So very, very respectable there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a favorite of uh, filmmakers of all kinds, everyone from uh, contemporaries of the French New Wave to Nicolas Cage, of all people, I found <laughs> out, is a huge 400 Bullows fan, as is Ellen Page. So there's uh, nothing. And, uh, and oh, I was going to say, um, not contemporary, but uh, Kurosawa, I guess, also says yes. one of his favorite movies. Kira Kurosawa. Nice little segue from last month <laughs> when we talked about oh, yeah. Seven Samurai, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And uh, and John put a quote here that I really love. Kurosawa called The 400 Blows one of the most beautiful films that I've ever seen. And that's saying something. Coming from Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Wow. 
yeah. made some beautiful, beautiful films. So it's it's that's certainly something. And John, you briefly mentioned earlier, and I I loved what you said in your letterbox review about this. There are four sequels to this movie that were made over the, like the next twenty years, and uh, I've seen all of them, and they're all fantastic. So it's it's a it's a franchise that like not everyone realizes is a franchise. This isn't the this is not the movie you would expect to kick off like a, a like a running series cinematic universe yeah <laughs> yes yes the Antoine no, it, one i haven't seen universe. the sequels but i've heard that they are pretty fantastic and they definitely faithfully sort of document true foe's experiences in a way that is pretty touching considering he died very young uh in the 80s yeah. and we unfortunately yeah. never got to see more work from him and uh and of course uh, i think it was a brain tumor that he died from which is very sad and uh yeah. you know with kurosawa especially i just think that you know, when I think of Kurosawa, I think a lot of his innovations with camera movement. And mm-hmm. you can definitely tell these were contemporaries because camera movement and the way that handheld cameras were innovated with by the Young Turks is definitely something that these two wonderful filmmakers shared in common. And so uh, it, it's, it's definitely something to look out for when you're watching or rewatching the 400 Blows. Uh, the way the camera pans, the way the camera doesn't do a lot of zooming, obviously, until the very end. But when you do actually see the way that he kind of like depicts an entire scene from like a window that is very yes. very inspired from kurosawa uh, especially like some of the scenes in seven samurai which we just saw right so i was definitely mm-hmm. i had that at the top of mind yeah that that's fantastic I, I i hadn't considered the camera movements but yeah it's they're very dynamic and certainly has a lot in common with kurosawa just a couple more things like seven samurai it holds a perfect 100 on rotten tomatoes i hope nobody goes in and screws that up because the godfather no longer has one of those but this has got it so Let's hope it stays that way. And it was Criterion's fifth movie that they put out, hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was their, it was their fifth one. For, for reference, Samurai uh, Seven Samurai was the second. So this was just, just after that. So it all ties in. Guys, you know what I just realized? Hmm. This is so funny. Oh, no. Episode four of Extra Milestone, the 400 oh. blows. Uh. <laughs> all right. I was... I was so scared. I thought you were going to say that it wasn't recording or something. (laughs) (laughs) Starting over. From the top. Hey. Oh, yeah. So it it has one hell of a legacy. I think I don't want to speak for you guys, but as you will probably find out by the end of this episode, I think it's well worth it. Couldn't agree more, but I guess this is our chance to talk about the film in some detail. Will Ashton, you just watched this, so it's pretty fresh in your mind. What, What is the 400 Blows about? Like I said before, it's about, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, but Antoni Donnell? Antoine. Denis? Antoine, but his last name is it Donnell? Or, it's I, think, like, I think you Antoine can say Doinell or Doinell. It's something like that, yeah. 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 Uh, he is uh, a young teenager in the 50s in Paris. As we alluded earlier, he's a troublemaker. He doesn't really study too well. He's not, I guess, would you call him a class clown? Is he more of just kind of a nuisance to the teacher than anything else. I don't quite know, but um, I think like class clown uh, would be more like you're doing mischief to entertain. Whereas I think he was just sort of like, he broke the rules just for obedient. Yeah. He just, he he didn't, I don't think he really cared much about what other people in the class thought of with the exception of like one scene where he gets slapped and you can tell he's very embarrassed, but yeah, I never got the class clown idea from him more of just like a stubborn rebellion. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in any case, his home life isn't much better. At best, his parents don't really understand him. At worst, they tend to disregard or abuse him. Well, I guess abuse is a strong word in the sense. They, 
yeah, mostly they tend to abuse him, and it's it, a pretty troublesome family dynamic for him, and he doesn't really have any form of escapism, not really until he finds the film or cinema does he really kind of find that sense of escape from his outside world from there he we follow that he his issues with discipline tend to get bigger and bigger and more and more extreme throughout the film including an incident where he skips class and then when he has to come up with an excuse he he says something that is obviously very bad and very immoral and that causes a lot of repercussions for him but eventually he i don't know how how far am i supposed to get into this because well it's, uh, we, it's we like you mentioned the spoiler tags were off yeah yeah it was, we can talk about whatever we want at this point so if you're still listening we're going to talk about the whole movie all spoilers go so yeah yeah so he quit school shortly after he he was pretty at this point in the film like pretty eager to actually like excel in class and he had this paper he was going to do and he, he related to his grandfather's death and then eventually uh he got accused of plagiarism and that was like the last straw for him and from there him well, and his he wasn't just accused he, he actually did plagiarize but wasn't yeah. it that like i maybe i'm combining two scenes but isn't it the idea that he had a great idea for it but then he forgot to do his homework and then just had to like write in from his favorite novel the impression i got was that he indirectly plagiarized like i think he read the book and then he just like kind of wrote that down. And then I don't know. I wasn't 100% sure if he directly plagiarized or if he was. I think he did. Because <laughs> it wasn't yeah. directly. No, he, just, he copied it directly out of the book. It's just yeah. so much okay. so that the teacher was like, this is out of a book. I recognize it word for word. You're, a, I think you're he also, an idea. He also, yeah. I think he also put that, that the poem that the teacher writes in there as well, if I'm not mistaken, like the hair in there as well. So oh, in any case. Oh, um, I don't recall that, but okay. I forget. Okay. In any case, uh, he quit school after just a long series of discipline and not excelling in class by any stretch of the imagination. And then he steals a typewriter. When he can't sell it, he tries to return it back to the place. He gets caught and arrested. And then from there, he is sent to a juvenile delinquent type center where his parents, uh, well, his his stepdad disowns him. and His mom more or less is doing the same. And then from there, he is kind of at a standstill where he is not quite a child, but he is also not a man either. Yeah, like one of the things that I love about this movie is you do sort of see what's indicative of that era when it comes to teenagers, because the idea of somebody being like a teenager and not really being a kid, but also not being an adult is something that the 50s and the 60s sort of created. And you can tell that Truffaut was really drawing from memory because like the idea of like a 14 year old kid not knowing what to do with themselves is like such a thing from the early 50s and late 40s of like the post-war France. And uh, it's something that I really love the way it's depicted here. It's because you never know. He's, he's very serious. He's always nicking money. He's always stealing things. And the moments when he gets to act like a kid, even those tend to be kind of uncomfortable because he wants to grow up so quickly and he hates that transitional period. Just kind of a general takeaway. But let's talk about what we think of the film overall sam i think you like this one is that fair to say yeah i kind of like it it's fine uh yeah no it's a no it's fantastic it's it's an indelible classic for a reason i've loved it every single time i've watched it and watching it again i'm like yep still great for reasons that obviously i was paying extra close attention this time so which we'll be getting into but i think it really does 
define that uh, that period in one's life. I think I think you summarized it perfectly. It's you're not quite you're too old to be a kid and too young to be an adult. And it's just this little nebulous sliver of time that I think most of us can relate to cultural differences aside. It's a very specific part of somebody's life and everyone reacts to it differently. And I just I just dearly love getting to see this this one person experience it for all of the bad and all of the occasional good it's 99 minutes but it does not waste a second it feels it, there are a couple of movies worth of material in this at least from like a from a quality standpoint every blow lands and i think that <laughs> yeah i I think that there aren't that many films that are this cavalier. It's a film that heavily criticizes the way that government treats juvenile delinquents, the way they sort of just really write him off. And yeah. it's so it's so interesting because everything that happens, Will really said it well in the idea that it's kind of episodic, the way that there's so much cause and effect here. Uh, he mm. does, like, this happens to him because he happened to be late, because this thing happened, and as a result, he cheats on his test. You know, he skips school, sees that his mom, did, you know, is cheating on his stepdad, and like, so here's, here's what happens because of that. And then a lot of the times that he breaks the rules or something happens where he gets in a lot of trouble, it's not that he's not complicit in what happens it's just that his his circumstances it, th- he faces so much misfortune <laughs> you know it's like yeah. he feels like the world is out to get him and the movie makes the case that yeah it is and the, the world yeah. is out to get you when you're young and it, it it's definitely what makes this film so easy to kind of soak in well wh- what did you think overall did you like this one are you still processing i'm sure it's like a pun because i i just saw it a couple of days ago so i've had a little bit of time <laughs> but uh what did you think yeah i mean when it started probably for the first 30 minutes or so. I wasn't fully on board with it just because I, I, I wasn't really a fan of the main character. I wasn't super engulfed into his life and his world. But once the scope of the film really came clear and when I really got a sense of what the film was communicating really clicked for me. And I think from that point, probably a little before the halfway point of the film it really started to work for me from there and yeah I, I definitely think the last third or the last probably 30 to 40 minutes of the film are truly great and i probably would enjoy it more upon rewatch because i did really like it but i do think i would get to the level you guys are at upon a rewatch where i really kind of understood what the movie is doing and fully soak it in but yeah i definitely enjoyed it yeah, like one thing, just kind of going off of what you said of like getting into this kid's world, I, I get so easily fascinated sometimes by movies that are such are so memory in their storytelling because this childhood, it's nothing like what my childhood was like, right? It, it's so foreign yeah. to see like what he's going through. And I really like the nice touches of the historical fiction of it, of the idea that they had to ration things, uh, how poor they are. And it, it's a little weird in the sense that it, it sometimes seems like the movie actually takes place in the 40s and not the 50s. But you know it's in the 50s mm-hmm. because, as we mentioned, one of the movies that they go see is, is Paris Belongs to Us, which is a 50s film. So it makes yeah. you kind of wonder, like, where does this really take place? It's not like Roma, right? Roma is very specifically set in the time period where Alfonso Cuaron was a child. But in this one, that's definitely not the case. But I I didn't totally mind it because... I, I liked that ambiguity. It, it did have like sort of a timeless feel to it. And I don't think I've ever seen a film. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen Paris in a film shot this way where yeah. it looks kind of ugly, 
and really worn down and a place where I don't want to be. And that is never the case when I watch movies with Paris. Like <laughs> Paris is, to me is always a dream. It's always shot so idyllically. Midnight in Paris opens with like a Manhattan level, you know, <laughs> overture of how, look how great this place is before sunrise or sunset, I should say, is is so lavish in the location. Here, partly because of the black and white. Well, I mean- I was going to say, I mean, going like Breathless also is a, is a movie that makes Fran- France and Paris look gorgeous as well in the new wave era. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's just me. Like, I don't know if I'm if I'm just not appreciating this aspect of Paris, but I think it, I, my takeaway was that it's intentionally shot in a sort of grungy way to make you feel like, man, this kid's only moment of respite when he gets to wander the streets, that's the only thing he does for fun and can do for fun in this world, is to sort of wander this kind of ugly you know looking city that we know is going is about to be changed uh in the 60s especially it's going to become sort of go back to its its roots of the 20s but i don't know sam does any of this make any sense or do you do do you disagree completely or what what's going on it's it's something i hadn't thought about in terms of how like just the the atmosphere of paris in this i think i've i always just got a sense that it was trying to be sort of immersive in a way that we could empathize with Antoine, where it just feels like any old city in a movie. It's not, I didn't get any sense that it was particularly glamorized or uh, whatever the opposite of glamorized is. Uh, what I don't know what grounded? the word is, but grounded. Yeah. I didn't think it, I didn't get a sense that it was intentionally grungy or anything, but there, there certainly might some, be something to that. Cause the first thing I always notice about that movie fittingly enough is the opening credits, which is this, which is this long series of, of shots from the ground level, sort of looking up at the sky at the skyline while this romantic and exciting and free music is playing and that's the kind of music that we'll get all throughout there are a couple that's of the music di- that plays at the beginning of this episode oh really no kidding cool well that'll be that'll be very very good to have a reference to then yeah and uh, i always got the sense that this is not like like antoine does not look at uh paris the same way we do uh he just sort of looks at it as eh, it's home that's where I live. It's where it's where I'm familiar with, and it's where I it's where I dwell. Uh, so I always got sort of just a sense of realism from it, which is very fitting with sort of the intent that Truffaut had going into this. Yeah, the realism is very yeah. spot on in terms of how compact the the apartment is, for example. I mean, not to repeat too much of what Sam said, but yeah, I never got the sense that it was ugly per se, as far as its depiction of Paris. But yeah, definitely going off of what Sam said, I just think the mundaneness of it for mirroring our protagonist's perspective in the sense that, you know, this is what he, this is where he's lived his whole life and life for him has never really been particularly good. So yeah, just that kind of mundane, boring, dry and cynical worldview for him where he, he wants to move on. He's had enough of childhood and I guess in that extension, Paris itself and it, the film does a very good job of mirroring that and i guess the black and white cinematography intentionally does a great job of mirroring that as well right he just wants to see the ocean and yeah. like we sort of mentioned that that scene where he's running toward the water and he finally achieves his goal he got where he wanted to go and then he kind of looks back at the camera and a lot of people have heavily debated this moment of what does it mean and i've always interpreted this this scene because i've i've seen this scene before like you have will cuz it's it's one of those things that like they debate in film school and not even watching the movie it was the kind of thing of like okay like is he trying is, what's it trying to say is it saying that he's just going to become a criminal next or whatever and 
I, I kind of just get this takeaway that he like, he's like, is that all there is? Uh, there's a song mm-hmm. that this scene seems to be like referencing where the, the lyric is, is that all there is? And kind of looking out and being like, this is no better than where I was. And then when he, he of course looks into the camera, it's this ambiguous, you know, it's like a subversion of the idea of like anything's possible, you know, like happily ever after. But in his, <laughs> in his sense, it's like, yeah, life is full of possibilities. I'm full of potential, but I have no idea what I actually want. What was your uh, interpretation of that scene? I I have had a couple over the years, but they all they all tend to come back to something fairly similar to each other. I've always I've never really gotten the sense that it was plot related. Like, oh, it turns out it was you know it was a fourth wall break, so the whole movie was fake. I've heard that argued before. <laughs> I don't a, think that's anything. That was uh, oh yeah, the stoner in our class brought that one up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, I don't think it's anything. It's it's not meant to be some sort of big reveal or anything. I think it's just this very. It's it's following like literally not even kidding just five minutes or close to five minutes anyway of Antoine just just running through the the vast landscape of opportunity or whatever and seeing that nothing is there or maybe not that nothing's there but that it's not ready it's not as readily made as maybe we're hoping when we're at that age yeah he he can't run forever like yeah. something's always going to stop him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, Whether you can even, you can even interpret that scene. I read this once where somebody said, it's like a mugshot. It's like the mugshot mm-hmm. of when they took it of him is when they do it again at the very end to be like, you're still captured. The system still has you. You'll never be able to fully run away from it. And that's him with that realization. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's uh, knowing how the sequels play out. That's, that's a very interesting interpretation. I haven't, uh, haven't considered that before. I don't know if I completely agree with it when it comes to the you're you know you'll always be a slave or whatever. But as, I don't know if I agree with it totally either. To be clear, yeah, I th- I think it's just it's really more than anything. It's this moment where after all this time we've spent seeing this child really go through quite a lot. It's not specified uh, exactly how long this movie takes place over. I get the sense that it's no more than like a couple of months. So it's a very definitive yeah. couple of months, and it's this moment where. The viewers who are watching and are perhaps either sympathizing or empathizing or maybe just spectating on what this child has been doing. We finally, the viewer and Antoine, just sort of get to see each other for the first time, you know, after all of it's happened. And I think it's just this really this really good way to just put a button on all of it and say, like, yep, that's it. There's, you know, this the story continues, even if there hadn't been sequels. It's like, yeah, this this child let out would go on to lead a life. But that's the end of this story, yeah. so to speak. I, I know that's sort of like a, a broad, you know. It's a bit saccharine, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's what I tend to go with, and I know that Truffaut is is would not cert, would not be averse to an ending of that kind. So that's the one I tend to go with. But of course, there are pr- probably dozens of interpretations. Absolutely. Will we don't want to put the pressure on you? Don't want to put you on the spot. You just saw it. But did you have a specific? takeaway from the ending of this film or if you want to also i know you wanted to also talk about the interrogation scene i keep calling it interrogation but it's more of like a they're just asking him questions it's not like aggressive but yeah. uh it, yeah. it's a it's a confession more. oh it's, that's a good way it's to like it. a confession or an interview like it's just a yeah, profile yeah. of him like they're kind of profiling him just trying to figure out where on what his side of perspective is like it's 
Well, I mean, they, they accuse him of saying that he's like lying all the time. So there is even the implication that they don't really even believe him, whatever he is saying. So but I'll, I'll go to the beach scene first, because like I said, I have seen that scene before. I've been in film classes where that scene is discussed. So I I knew the end of this film before I saw the beginning. So it was kind of this like it was more for me, I guess, just kind of moving towards that scene. Yeah, it's like watching how Lolita. we got there. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> like it's like a memento of some sort i guess for me but um yeah. or planet yeah of the I, apes. I, I oh yeah yeah i, I guess that's a bit, that's a more apt comparison like planet of the apes six cents only of that sort although it's not really like a twist per se but no. um yeah and in any case the i think you guys have said it very well it's it's that like endless possibilities but at the same time he's completely trapped there's like that like road the possibilities where he's running he's free there's this like there's I forget there is there music in that scene I don't remember oh, yeah. if there's like any like swelling is, is there music in that scene where he's it's, running it's the score kind of mixed with another uh, rendition and then we're gonna be closing out this episode with that music okay. Will Ashen okay. it's like you're psychic <laughs> or something ooh but yeah I mean there's just like this like grandiose oh he's finally like he's free he's no longer confined and then he gets out there and like the ocean itself is beautiful and it's full of possibilities it encompasses the world and yet like he's just one guy he can't swim as far as i know like he can't he can't really go anywhere from there so he is just confined to who he is and where he's from in that extension and yeah i mean like he, he can either just go back or he can like i guess go somewhere else but Build he's really not gonna castle. he can't go as far as i guess <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean but i didn't really think of the like uh I didn't think of the comparison between the mugshot and that that final screen cap, but yeah, I mean that's an interesting comparison as well. Just like that, he is basically uh, confined to that possibility of being who he is for basically his whole life, even though he is at a point right now where he is not fully matured or not as mature, I guess, as he wants to be. And yet, his life seems kind of predetermined already. And whether that resorts to you know petty crime or even more extreme crime, or he's just gonna be left wallowing in his kind of like sense of self-pity or lack of uh, <laughs> more, uh, I don't know what word would be, but yeah, it, it, it's, I guess it depends how you look at it. It could be maybe optimistic, but it seems like for the most part, people tend to have a kind of dour, bleak look at the ending of the film and correct me if I'm wrong, but is this one of the first like major ambiguous endings in mm -hmm. cinema as far as like one of the first like open-ended endings that really kind of caught on this particular way, or is that overstepping? Definitely one of the first, and that's why it's talked about so often, because it went on to shape okay. a lot of other ambiguous endings. Like the idea of an ending sure. not giving you a clear idea of what's going to happen next to the character, it was pretty unheard of. I mean, unless I'm forgetting something, Sam. Uh, nothing's springing to mind. I'm, I, I have no doubt that it, it had happened before this, but this, it, is, it had, yeah. this is certainly one of the certainly one of the notable ones. For um, a film right. that captured the zeitgeist this thoroughly, though, right? Like a very successful yeah. film? Yeah, it's very big. That's what I mean. Yeah. So I don't I don't think it's like the first ever. Like, I don't think it was a complete like trendsetter in that regard. But I do think it did start the trend as we know it now yeah. with like films allowing themselves to be ambiguous or open ended by the end and not having it defined like they live happily after or they're going to jail or whatever. It's just like we yeah. don't really know because he's like there's no there's no yeah, end credits like over his mugshot going like he would go on to be a like Truffaut himself a a sensual lover with many women return in the Avengers <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Right. yes the French he will return in the French new wave um, cinematic universe of there films. you go it's so yeah. funny yeah. listening because I know what 
ends up happening, but that is that is neither here nor there. Um, I did come up. I, I came up with one ending that might be somewhat ambiguous. Is a uh, vertigo? What do you guys think? That's a little ambiguous, but I guess not to this yeah. extent, right? Because it's not more. Of, yeah, yeah. I, I just it, it sprung into my mind, so I thought I might say something. But yeah, this is to quote "Sweet Child of Mine." Where do we go now? And the answer <laughs> is that at this point, they, nobody knew. So that's that's I think the one thing that almost everyone can agree on with that ending is that it certainly could go in several dif- uh, different directions. Yeah, and I was going to mention this before, but. I think the argument for the mugshot interpretation is that it's because they edited it so that it was like a camera taking a picture of him. So it was almost like that. The argument is like, oh, it's the filmmaker sort of taking the mugshot. And because he created this character, he's the one who's putting the character in a box and it's Truffaut getting all meta. I think you alluded to one of those meta interpretations already, Sam, but there's all kinds yeah. of theories people have been throwing at this movie for decades and decades, 60 <laughs> years, in fact. So, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, what were you going to say, Will? Oh, I just was going to ask Sam, if, since you have seen the sequels or at least a few of them, are we completely off base here without getting the spoilers? Or is this like, are we kind of in line with what we should expect if we see the other films? Oh, well, you said a, a variety of things. So uh, what sure. are you referring to? Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, just I, I, we generally seem to think that things aren't going to turn out super great for yeah. him. Are you laughing at us or are you nodding as, as a mildly interested person at us? It's I, I, if it's of if it's those choices, then I suppose it's the latter. Yeah. So I'll just basically what happens is that in the sequels, it doesn't like at no point does it ever go catastrophically wrong. Uh, but it never goes catastrophically good either. It's a very it continues that trend of realism in much the same way that Truffaut's life continued. the The final, the fifth movie, Love on the Run, sort of cuts off when Antoine is more or less at the age that or at the stage in life that Truffaut was when he made the 400 blows. So it, it certainly comes full circle. Oh. And hmm. if you have the Criterion channel, then all five of all four of the sequels are on there. They're all good. Every single one of them. Uh, one okay. of them is a short, the rest are feature length. All of them are good. So they're certainly worth your time. I was going to ask if the character of Antoine becomes a filmmaker as well, but you may not be able to divulge that without getting too deep into spoilers. It's it's not really a spoiler. Uh, he becomes a, uh, a if if memory serves, and I'm and it's been like a year, so I might be wrong. He becomes a very respected author, I believe. Um, okay. So more so kind of kind of like an alternate version of Truffaut, perhaps. Sure, that makes sense. All right. Is there anything else you both want to mention before we wrap things up? For this extra milestone, I think we've covered a lot of really great things. Plenty more we could. I was going to talk about the interrogation scene. So, Please do. Um, unless, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you already touched on my main point, which is that I realized after I saw the film that that scene was almost entirely improvised. I mean, obviously not all of it is because some of the things he's referring to, like being, I think, something along the lines of like his first years for like with a wet nurse and his grandma and stuff like that were part of uh, Truffaut's childhood. So I, from what I heard, I guess, I think you might have saw, it was in the interview that the lead actor gave, which is that like Truffaut like sat down with the lead actor and was like, this is like the scene. Like, this is like the big moment, not only for you as an actor, but for the film. So we got to get this right. And he like told him about it like well into advance. Like, I think he gave him a month or so to prepare for that scene. And I guess they did a couple times or at least one or two times before. And it wasn't really working out. 
where he was just like improvising it completely. And I guess Truffaut like gave him a couple like like lines or like things he could say that I guess was like kind of referring to stuff I was saying before. But for the most part, that scene, uh, it feels so naturalistic because most of it is improv by the actor, or at least like from his his words, like his turn of phrases there. It's not Truffaut. So I thought that was pretty fascinating because I had no idea about that going into the film or watching it. Yeah. And it was another detail I thought was very interesting was he he would actually skip school to he skipped school to be able to go to the audition for this in the first place because yeah he lived <laughs> oh, in the countryside and just he, like the et kid yeah just like and it's just it's a nice little like you really see the similarity right and i think that was part of why Truffaut was like yeah this is the kid you know this is the one who if he improvises those lines it's the same story it's Truffaut's story but yeah the, like you said the turn of phrase the way he's able to do the delivery i mean it's mesmerizing watching this kid talk because a lot of this film he hasn't talked that much and we haven't seen him really bear his soul out and that's why i like the idea of it being compared to a confession right because you just yeah. get the sense that one of the reasons he's so quiet around his parents and you're wondering why you know he doesn't really defend himself or anything like that or he does but it's always very curt and he doesn't really ca- he doesn't seem to care what goes on in the home a lot of it seems to be he just ex- he just expects to not be believed or that they always think that he's lying and i really i really like the idea of looking at him not as like this very evil person because he does bad things, but he never does anything that bad. He does, but it's like everything that he does seems to be built out of like a self-preservation, a very hedonistic thing, but never something of like, I'm going to really hurt somebody or I, I'm so angry. Like he doesn't seem to have issues with anger or lashing out. He's just very ambivalent toward the world at large. Yeah, I was going to say he's never malicious. Like he never does anything that like is like abusive, I guess. Like he just like does, like you said, like things to self-preserve or like trying to help him get along or like just like get out of trouble with anything just something that pranks uh, yeah a couple a couple like mischievous things but i mean most of his classmates i they're shown like they break that kid's glasses so it's like he's not really like that far away from like the other kids in class he just tends to get caught right so i mean yeah how awful are those teachers, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. It's early on, and it's where uh, after Antoine skipped school or something and tries to sort of sneak back onto the onto the campus, and the teacher's like, "Hold it right there, Mister. What kept you yesterday?" And he's like, "It's my mother, sir." He's like, "What?" And and he goes, "She's dead," and his mother's <laughs> alive and well. But then, but then this, but then this teacher who's just been sort of just sort of needlessly uh, just sort of unfair to the kid, uh, just sort of singling him out or belittling him or whatever, just sort of out of nowhere gets all genuine and says, well, son, you should always confide in your teachers. And it's like, yeah. you know, every adult in this movie, he sort of feels like every adult is has sort of failed him. And because that's, all the none of the adults are very sympathetic, <laughs> right? No, but, not really. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, kind of fascinating with the parents. Well, I don't mean sympathetic in the sense that you you don't understand them or that they're not human. The idea of like, you don't like them. Like the parents yeah. are just kind of mean spirited in a lot of ways. The mother, like to his face, just gives the impression of like, I didn't want to have you and I don't want to be here right now. Yeah. And the dad is emotionally abusive. Like he has moments of levity. But th- this is one of the things that fascinates me about the movie is that you definitely get the sense that Truffaut is a fan of psychology, uh, that he came out of the Freud era because, you know, psychology is part of that interview scene, right? And where it's a psychologist who's able to like get to the root of why Antoine does the things that he does. And also the film is more about like, yeah, 
psychological and emotional abuse is just as damaging as physical abuse. And he, he doesn't really get physically abused much. He gets slapped. But the, yeah, the, even the parents are like, oh, well, we, we don't know what to do with him. And we're just not the kind of people that would hurt him. But then it, it really, yeah. f- to me, feels like Truffaut is saying is like, they don't even see it. Like, they don't see the way that they act, the way that they fight next door to him, the way they, they put him in this cramped area, and the way that they punish him and, and treat him like a slave at times it messes with him and it's abusive. And you even see like, there's such a change when they show the little, littlest bit of decency when they take him to the cinema, his favorite place. And it's yeah. it, on a dime, you get this like unexpected reprieve. They're not interested in raising Antoine. Yeah. Uh, they sort of just, they, they almost view him as a burden. They talk about him like a pet yeah. almost at times to the point where, you know, he's alone most of the time and the, the parents don't really seem to be interested in his well-being. And I think there's a brilliant motif in this movie that I noticed this time around of cages or bars or specific, very specifically corners. Antoine is sent to numerous corners throughout this movie. And boxes. There are numerous, yeah, boxes. There you go. Metaphorical and in the classroom and all and that. And there's yeah. no corners yeah. at the beach, but... That's right. It's, but yeah. There's a corner formed by the frame of the camera or whatever. Yeah. And there are a couple of POV shots toward the end that I really love where he's just looking out through like a wire mesh cage in the prison cell or outside of the bars on the back of the police truck. And so he just feels so confined and that the only purpose I'm serving in my current state of life is to just go and do where and what all the adults tell me. And I've just, I've had it with that. And so I think it really, it brings you to a point where even though Antoine is breaking the rules, he's not the most well-behaved kid, but it gets to a place where we can deeply sympathize with him, even if we haven't gone through exactly the same experiences. And I just, that that's what I think is the most brilliant. And my favorite part of the entire movie is this brief period he has with his, with his friend Rene, where they just get to just sort of hang out at Renee's house and just sort of do whatever they want. The parents aren't very attentive and they're indulging in all this stuff. Like they're getting cigars and drinking wine and they stealing money. They're just up to mischief. It's this, it's this period of gleeful liberation. And that's sort of Antoine at his height in the movie. And it really got to me this time around. So I think it's a brilliant nuanced story from beginning to end. The one thing I noticed with the parent dynamic is that it seems like, they switch kind of halfway through the film. I don't know if you guys got this, but at the beginning, the mom is kind of distant and cruel and very dismissive of her son. Then, like, the, the levity moments you're talking about with the dad tend to be towards the beginning. Like, he's kind of joking. He's mm. like, we're having like a bachelor's part club kind of thing. And obviously, like, the mom's having an affair throughout this time. Then, like, sometime after the movie theater scene, like, they switch. Like, the mom is a little more attentive, like, open to having like a loving relationship with the, uh, with her son. Whereas, like, the dad at that point, is like completely distant and cold like he doesn't have any levity and he that's where the like the more like abusive stuff that we're talking about tends to come in so i found that kind of fascinating i don't know if you guys thought of that as well or if that was something you noticed throughout the film yeah i got the sense that it was because the mom was trying to butter him up so that he wouldn't tell the dad about the affair yeah uh, i wasn't right. sure if that was a fair reading but yeah it's so subtle you, you could come away with a totally different interpretation especially because she's just like oh you don't need all that stuff at school it's like it's, it's a total 180 and then you can tell mm-hmm. the dad is frustrated because like things keep disappearing. He really feels like this kid is stealing from him. And I think their their poverty what is really starting to get to him. The Michelin Guide. Oh, man. Yeah, Michelin Guide. Yeah. Yeah. He reminds me of like those parents, you know, who 
they get so obsessed with their hobbies that they completely neglect their kids. And like you said, just leaving them alone all the time. And yeah, it's really not hard to leap to why this kid feels like his home is such a prison. I mean, it's just, it's shot in such a way that you really just don't want to be there with him. Um, And Mm -hmm. and for me, like the best parts of the movie is when he gets out and he's able to just explore and roam. And that's, (laughs) that's what you want for him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, home life isn't desirable in the classroom. Just every every little precious bit of life is just harshly punished by the teachers saying, no, slapping it out of the hand, whatever it may be. Faza. Uh, even if it's, even, Faza. Yeah, yeah, just, just every, it's, every place is a prison, essentially. Uh, and even that line of dialogue, where is the father? It's like, geez, Shufo, we get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's like it, it, repeating it over and over again of the father. It's not father. Where's the father? And then just Antoine has to sit there and be like, I don't know. Could be anywhere. Yeah, not here. And that and that was uh, that was directly inspired from Truffaut's life, who was never never got a solid answer on who his biological father was, and his last name was taken by one of his stepfathers. So that holds very true in this movie. But all right, I think that is a good place to finish this out. Next month, it's between a few films that we we just don't know what to talk about. Sam, Sam, what are these films? Uh, I think one of them is the one that I really want to do and. We'll let the listeners guess which one it is. Okay. Uh, well, it's Chinatown. I, d- I don't even want to wait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Vote for Chinatown. Do you want to? You want to tip your hand? Yeah. The election for Chinatown begins now. Yeah. Yeah. Those other movies, you've probably seen them already. Let's talk about Chinatown. You probably haven't seen it in a while sure. at all. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Just everyone remember, uh, John's responsible for uploading the podcast. So vote with your heart, <laughs> but also your brain. Uh, yeah. So John, uh, I'll just go in order from oldest to newest, uh, 1974 celebrating the 45th anniversary is Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Ooh, sounds uh, interesting. We should watch that. Which is, which is which is one of the uh, one of the all time uh, crime sort of noir classics, uh, starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, and John Huston of all people. Um, so that one that one certainly a lot to unpack there. Uh, had a cultural impact. Then jumping forward five years, celebrating the 40th anniversary is Ridley Scott's Alien, one of the most iconic movies of all time. Uh, and it's easy to see why, but I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. And I want to say real quick, that's my second choice, if only because I like the idea of doing a film from the 70s. Those are our two 70s options, and we haven't done one from the 70s yet. We've done a lot of 50s. We've only done the 50s and the 30s. So just keep that in mind uh, as, as you go down the yeah. rest of this list. We haven't really done a genre film per se either, so that'd be a fun uh, uh, diversion in that respect. Seven Samurai, I would consider Let's, that an action movie. Yeah, it happened one night. Is a, so, yeah. a rom com. Uh, it's the also well, some like a hot. But, yeah. but I mean, I think you mean genre, right? In like sci-fi, you know, fantasy, that kind of thing, maybe or. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's the way yeah. I meant. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of lot of things to take into consideration, regardless. All right. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, f- five years after that, celebrating the 35th anniversary, uh, maybe a little bit of a curveball, is Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, mm-hmm. uh, which I would argue is slightly more obscure than Chinatown, but that's uh, that that can be up in the air. Um, uh, they're about the same, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's a good question. 
they're close. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I, I assume the polls may, uh, may inform us on whether or not that's the case. Right. It's not a popularity contest, by the way. I don't care if yeah. you've heard the film already. We want to hear. <laughs> I think we, yeah. The good I think ones. it would be good to do that one, uh, with the release of once upon a time in Hollywood coming out in August. Hil- Hillary Clinton over here campaigning. Hey, well, <laughs> oh, camping. Mr. Oh, excuse me, Mr. I let me talk about uh, Chinatown before we even uh, put in the polls here. I should have I should have yeah. said you're more like Joe Biden because it's Pennsylvania. But anyway, I don't know if I like being compared to Joe Biden, but OK, that's uh, <laughs> all right. I don't, I'm just I, gonna, like, I don't I'm like just this train. Out of Let's it. get off it. <laughs> Let's all settle down. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to stay out of this. Uh Yes, Once Upon a Time in America is a Sergio Leone director of such westerns as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, which is not related, but they have a similar title, uh, starring Robert De Niro. And it's it's a huge three-and-a-half-hour epic gangster movie, not unlike The Godfather, but it's mm-hmm. certainly – there is it's it's not – it's not just doing the Godfather. So even though it has Robert De Niro in it, it's very much yeah. its own thing. Uh, and it's very brilliant. If you ask me, I, I actually, I don't know. Have you, have either of you guys seen that one? Yes. So I want to see it again. I've seen the beginning of it and then I, I didn't get to watch the rest of it, but what I saw, I thought was fantastic. It's, it's certainly worth watching whether or not we end up doing the episode. Uh, and then our final, our fourth and final option, uh, is the one that, uh, I I end up I hope ends up making a ve- a pretty decent run is the 30 year anniversary of Tim Burton's Batman, which I'm surprised that's the one that you're really leaning toward. I would never have guessed. W- why is that? Why do you think? Is it just doesn't seem like my kind of movie? It it's not that at all. I think I th- you know I think it's a movie I would assume you like, but not over Chinatown and Once Upon a Time in America, or would want to talk about more than those two movies. <laughs> It's it's an impossible decision. It's we 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 had trouble just narrowing it down to four. So suffice right. to say that getting it down to just these was difficult. June's a popular month, so it's a popular month, as are the re- the remainder of the summer months. Um, but yeah, I really really love Batman. I just got to see it again in the theaters, uh, and I loved it more than ever before. It's one of the first movies I ever remember seeing, so I have a very personal connection with it. And I also think to, it is to this day one of the best comic book movies ever made. Um, I know I, I know there are some who share my my view on that, so I'd be very curious to see how we all land on that one. Should we end up choosing it? But those are your choices. So just to run them down again, it's Chinatown. Oh. Alien, say, sorry. No, I just realized so it'd be two movies with Jack Nicholson in it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. What do you know? He's really creeping up on these lists. It all comes full circle, doesn't it? Uh, okay, so uh, so once again, it's Chinatown, Alien, Once Upon a Time in America, and Batman. Choose a wisely. Yeah. yeah, and I think Will, you're leaning toward any film that you've already seen before, correct? <laughs> no. Well, I've seen half of these. I would. I do generally want to see uh, Once Upon a Time in America. The only thing that deters me a little bit is um, seeing the runtime be about four hours again. But sure. and I also kind of want to see it in theaters. But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would love to see this film. And uh, you know, Chinatown's been on my list for forever. That's probably one I should check out sooner as opposed to later. So I, I have no 
real horse in this race. I would be pretty happy with any of these titles, but um, I'm very curious to see what the listeners pick. Yeah, we, yeah. we will see indeed. We're going to put that up on our Patreon and we'll also let the Twitter users get a chance to vote as well. And if you want to vote on cinemaholics.com, just go to the comments section for this episode when you hear it and leave a comment for which one you want to hear. We'll, we'll of course put that up there as well. Now, Last thing, there was one movie from May that I wanted to say I wish we could have talked about. Uh, one of my other favorite films, probably in my tw- top 30 of all time, probably, is Midnight Cowboy, oh. which just celebrated 50 years. Came out May 25th, oh, 1969. Yeah. I know there's some debate of like when it actually comes out, because I think Midnight Cowboy premiered at Cannes, so that's one of those films that, oh, you could say it premiered, you know, wide release was this month and all of that. But was there anything else that either of you wanted to highlight for May before we finish this out? Uh, I'll let Will go first. Uh, I don't know. I don't have anything. <laughs> this, uh, is, this is impromptu, the, uh, if you can't tell. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, it's fine. There were, there were a lot of options we ran through. Um, but the one I would just want to mention is the one we nearly ended up doing, but went for this one instead, which, as mentioned earlier, is Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker. Right. Um, which is one of one of the ultimate uh like hardcore cinephile movies um according to most it's it's a it's a it's an obtuse film but it's a rewarding one if you're willing to put in a the time and b the mental effort required uh i've seen it i twice now um I still, I, I wonder if I'll ever completely get it. And that's what I love about it the most. And if you're curious to hear a little bit more, I did write a movie of the week article about it a couple months back. So that is available if you're at all curious, but yeah, I would have loved to do stalker, but I hope that we can do perhaps a different Tarkovsky film one day. Yeah. Plenty to choose from. And, oh, well, I know which one you wanted to do. You totally forgot to mention it. Star Wars, the Phantom Menace just celebrated 20 years. <laughs> Uh, pretty great oh man <laughs> steady oh, steady man. <laughs> now this is podcast i have seen that movie <laughs> yeah, now this is podcasting yeah um i have seen that movie so oh my goodness oh man <laughs> really? you got me you got, got me good that one. yeah you- <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you uh <laughs> oh yeah That'll do it for this month's episode of Extra Milestone. If you have any suggestions or any films that we might miss, we want to hear uh, any of your feedback on this episode. Send us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. Always go to cinemaholics.com if you want to engage with us directly on there as well. And hopefully we're getting all the anniversary films, especially if there's an obscure one that you'd like to hear us talk about. We're thinking about opening this format a little bit to at least mention and briefly delve into other anniversaries that we don't devote the full episode to. So if you have suggestions for that, we want to hear it. Uh, Again, cinemaholics.com or email cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. With that, we'll see you all again in June. From the Internet California, I am John Negroni. From the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. And from the internet, Colorado, I'm Sam Nolan. See you next time. <laughs>